Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Honestly, I get so tired of reading about these miracle cures for cancer that obviously never work, because cancer is still around. But what is true is that we are finding new ways of dealing with cancer. And this is the scientific process where we make incremental changes, where we build on top of things that we found out earlier. And and this is the proven way of doing things. It's methodical. And most importantly, this is what gets results. So when does a new treatment really become the standard approach that is available to everyone? Well, this is where clinical trials come in. Because the way I see it, a clinical trial is a bridge between research and the patient. This is an opportunity for folks like you and me to access the latest treatment out there, to really get the, the best outcome possible, which is what it's all about, right? So in order really to find out more about how clinical trials work and how it all fits together in the context of your treatment, I'm talking to Ian Davis. And Ian is the chair of ENZEP. Um, ENZEP is a group of medical experts who look after clinical trials for below-the-belt cancers here in Australia and in New Zealand. And Ian puts so much passion and energy into creating outcomes for the real world, for people like you and me, that you know, it's a real honor to have him here on the podcast as, as really the, the world authority on clinical trials. So enjoy. Ian, it's such a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you about clinical trials. I'm really excited about it because to me, really clinical trials are, the, you know, it's the front line of fighting cancer. And, you know, it's making a huge difference for folks out there. But I mean, unfortunately, like most people don't realize how important this is and, and the, the critical role it plays in, in fighting cancer. So w- what's your perspective on that? Yeah, thanks, Joe, for the chance to talk to you and to talk about clinical trials. Uh, it's very important. Every time you go to the doctor to get your blood pressure medication or the medicine for your cholesterol, or even if you're going to go and buy some vitamins from the chemist and you think that's going to help you, you do that because you've got some information about it. You know that here is a treatment that might help you in your condition or might not. You've got information about how safe it is, you know, when you should use it and when you shouldn't use it. You might not be aware that you've got that information, but it's there. And and that exists because clinical trials have been done in all of those situations. So every time you go to the doctor, you have cancer and you're having a discussion about what sort of treatment might be appropriate for you. The advice that's being given to you is being given in the context that a clinical trial has been done and it's given you evidence. Now, we hope that that's the case. The reality is, for many of the clinical situations we find ourselves in, the evidence is not there. And we're extrapolating from what we know or from the basic science or from our understanding of the condition, but there might not be a clinical trial to guide us in our decision making. And in that situation, it becomes a whole lot harder to make recommendations for people. So that's why we need to continue to push this agenda of doing more clinical trials, doing them better, so that we can get more information, help people and support them in their decision making. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so, and there's so many, I guess, you know, myths and misconceptions about it. I think it's really important to, to be really clear about that. And one of them is, you know, that clinical trials are administered as a last resort. Is that true? No, it's absolutely not true. Sometimes it's appropriate to think about taking part in a clinical trial as your very first treatment. 
Uh, we do a lot of those clinical trials here at, at our hospital and through Anzac Cancer Trials Group, uh, where we do clinical trials for genitourinary cancers. Many of the trials we're doing are sometimes the first treatment that someone might have had for their disease. So definitely not a last resort. Um, but people should understand that if they're going on a clinical trial, they'll always get the very best possible treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that sort of implies that it's not, it's not, it's not some sort of an experiment. I mean, this has been thoroughly researched and it builds on this body of knowledge that already exists out there. That's right. There's different types of clinical trials. So the, when you're first taking a promising treatment into the clinic to see if it works, we don't even know how to give these medications sometimes. They might never have been given to humans before. So we don't know what the side effects are. We don't know what the safe doses are. don't know how frequently to give these medications. And so early phase clinical trials help us to answer those sorts, those sorts of questions and to give us some indication about how active it might be. We've usually got some clues about these things from earlier experiments in the lab and elsewhere, but you really have to ask these questions in humans. And then as you go on further in the, in the development process, then you start to compare the clinical trials against the best standard treatment that's available to see, is it better in some way? Does it make people live longer? Is it better tolerated? Is it cheaper? Is it easier to give? Are there other sorts of benefits besides survival that we might be looking for for our patients? Yeah, absolutely. Things like quality of life, exactly. right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. And I've heard that there is like a placebo involved. And is that true or how does it work? Yeah. So a placebo is an inactive treatment. And sometimes it's appropriate and necessary to do that. But the way I pitch the discussion to people when I'm talking about this is there are certain situations where it's not necessary to jump straight in and have another active treatment. So let's say, for example, you've got a certain type of cancer, you know it's there, it's growing very, very slowly, it's not causing any problems, it's not likely to cause any problems in the near term, and there might not be any treatment that's out there and known to be effective, or there are treatments but they've got side effects and perhaps it's not the right balance for you to, to go down that pathway at the moment. In that situation, the best approach for that person might be to say, we're not going to give you any treatment now, we're going to watch and see how the cancer grows, and at some point in the future, you might need to have some treatment. Now, that's not saying no treatment, that's about the timing of treatment. But for that person, the best treatment for them right now might be nothing at all. In that situation, then, it's entirely okay to use an inactive treatment like a placebo because people getting the placebo treatment would be getting what they ordinarily do anyway. So then you might ask, why have it at all? And the reason for that is that cancers are sneaky things and the treatments that we test are sometimes difficult to evaluate. So if someone with a cancer is complaining of tiredness or they get a rash or they grow a second head or something like that, <laughs> how do you know that that's a side effect of the treatment or maybe something that was going to happen as a result of the cancer growing anyway? A lot of the clinical trials that have been done with some of the new treatments suggest, for example, let's take kidney cancer, for example. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most common side effects was tiredness. And you might think, okay, these drugs cause tiredness. But then you look at the people who got placebo and they got tiredness as well. So you have to understand what the baseline levels of these things are in order to really understand what the impact of the active treatment is that you're testing. But the converse is also true. If we know that there is an active effective treatment for your cancer, and that's what you should be getting now ordinarily, then it's completely unethical to do a placebo in the trial because those people will not be getting the treatment that you know they should be having. So as I said before, if you go on a clinical trial, you know that you're going to be getting the very best of care. If you go on a clinical trial, which is comparing a standard treatment versus a new treatment, then the new treatment may or may not be better. 
the other people in the arm are getting the standard treatment that we know is best. Sometimes the standard treatment is no treatment, and those people might be receiving a placebo, but they're not missing out. They're getting exactly what they would ordinarily do. They're being watched very closely. They're getting the very best possible care. Yeah, so I think one thing what you're saying is that in any case, you're in safe hands and, uh, you know, you're getting the best solution out there. That's right. Fantastic. And so what's, uh, so, you know, what's the process, I guess, for putting together a clinical trial? And like, how does it come about and how does it evolve? Well, I guess there's two broad answers to that. When people think about clinical trials, they think about things that are run by drug companies. And they are the commonest sort of clinical trials that we do. A big drug company out there, armies of people working in their labs coming up with new treatments. And I think here's something that looks promising and we're going to make zillions of dollars out of this and cure cancer and our shareholders will be happy. No one's going to be angry at that company if they cure cancer. <laughs> would be delighted if they put me out of business. Uh, so in that situation, they will then come to people like me who do clinical trials and say, are you able to find people to go on to this clinical trial? And there's a, we look at the science behind it and we look at the clinical trial and the safety and the ethical aspects of it and say whether that's something that we do. So that's something that sort of comes from externally. The other broad group of clinical trials are what we call investigator-initiated trials. So this might be where someone who's experienced in the field says, look, there's a real clinical need here. These people are not doing as well as we would want them to do. The treatments we've got are not as good as we would like them to be. Here's an idea about how we might improve things. So in that situation, the idea has come from that person. That's why it's called an investigator-initiated. And that might be a very small-scale trial that's done in just one or two places, or it might be quite a large-scale trial. ANZUP, for example, has led several international clinical trials that have totaled several thousand patients. Uh, but these are investigator-initiated trials. These are ideas that we came up with and have developed with our local and international collaborators and rolled out, hopefully, to change practice in, in the future. So in that situation, you bring together a team of people to look at the science, look at the treatment, experience in clinical trial design, in all of the operational and ethical aspects behind all of that, some of the practicalities that people might not think about, like how do you ship the drug and how do you dispose of it when it's expired and what do you do about the safety reporting and all of those sorts of questions. We always try to add value to it as well. Are there other questions we can ask? Can we understand the science a bit better by collecting tissue or blood samples? Can we look at people's quality of life and see if this treatment is having effects on that? Can we look at some of the health economic issues around this treatment as well? This treatment we're testing might work just as well as the old one, but it might be a much more cost-effective way for the community to spend its health dollars. So we always try to add extra value to our clinical trials in that way. Well, it makes so much sense. So you mentioned change of practice. So who decides whether, you know, the treatment has worked and if it's to become a part of sort of standard protocol? It's a really interesting question. And there's several levels to that. <laughs> um, the first answer is the look shiny thing response. We're humans and we love to see novel things come through. And our initial reaction is something comes through, it's new, it's got some exciting science behind it, it must be better. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, sometimes it's just the same as the old treatment, sometimes it's actually worse than we used the previous one. So that's going to alter practice in that way. In practical terms, if we're talking about drug treatments in particular, it really comes down to making that treatment available in wherever you might be. And different regions around the world have got different ways of approving and reimbursing drugs. So in the United States, for example, if you get FDA approval, then you can access that drug. 
might have to pay for it, and that's a whole separate question. In Australia, there's two levels of approval. It needs to be approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. That way we can legally prescribe it in Australia. But really, to have it taken up into practice, it needs to be reimbursed through the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. And that's a much more difficult hurdle to, to jump over because the government has to tip money into supporting these things, and they're often expensive treatments. Once that is, has happened, then treatments are far more likely to be taken up. Some treatments, though, are using old drugs in new ways. An example recently is in prostate cancer, where a few years ago, some evidence came out that using a relatively old chemotherapy drug in a different way, much earlier in the disease course, translated into far better outcomes in terms of survival. And that information came through at exactly the time that that drug was de-restricted on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, so it was cheap and easy to use. And so uptake of that information happened literally overnight. The next day after the conference, people were getting that treatment in Australia. It was very... Has taken up very rapidly. Wow, that's fantastic. And you know, uh, you mentioned also different scales. So uh, you said that sometimes there's a small group of, of maybe patients who go through clinical trials. Sometimes there's a bigger group. So how is that decided? And uh, does it depend on the drug? Does it depend on the treatment? How does it work? That really comes down to the question that you're trying to answer. If you are early in the development of the drug and you're looking for information about how to use it, how often to dose it, what doses to use, what the side effects are, a phase one clinical trial. It often require only a few patients to get that information. A phase two clinical trial would be where you are rolling it out into a group of people all with the same sort of disease and you're trying to see how effective this treatment might be. So you need larger numbers, but it might be 50, 100, 200 patients typically on a study like that. If you're trying to do a phase three clinical trial where you're now putting it up against the standard sort of treatment to say, is this actually better or at least as good as the previous treatment, then you often need hundreds or even thousands of patients, particularly if you've already got very effective treatments. It might be quite hard to prove to yourself that you've got something that's doing even better than that. So that might require a lot of people followed for a long period of time before you get that information. So it really does come down to the questions you're trying to answer in that specific trial. Absolutely. And there's another area that I guess is fairly recent is the, you know, online interventions. And I just want to talk to you and get your perspective about how does that work? And I guess, how does it get implemented across the world if it goes to plan? We've been talking about clinical trials in the usual sense that people think of them in terms of here's a new drug, let's test it. But of course, there's other sorts of clinical research that can be done as well. Clinical trials might involve surgical devices, might not involve any sort of typical medical intervention. So as an example, ANZUP did a clinical trial a few years ago of a supportive care intervention for men with prostate cancer. And this was a psycho-oncology study led by one of our researchers, Professor Suzanne Chambers from Queensland, now of New South Wales, and um, this was a study using a, a behavioural therapy to try to help men and their partners deal with the issues around prostate cancer. There's other sorts of clinical studies as well. So ANZUP is running something called ETC, which is a web-based approach where men with testicular cancer can log in and find out information about testicular cancer to meet their own needs. So if they want to work through all of the modules on their website, they can do so. If they've got a specific question, they can target in and answer that sort of information. So that will help you 
in terms of provision of information and it might steer you to other support systems as well. But those sorts of systems also lend themselves to other types of research. So we can also collect information from people using systems like that uh, that can help answer other types of questions. For example, what is the information that people with testicular cancer need to understand? What are the most common sorts of issues they need in terms of supportive care or, or other sources of provision of information. So there's other types of research that can be done through those sorts of online interventions. And this typically, as I understand, a, a group of people that is possibly from different disciplines that are working on putting together a clinical trial. Is that true? ANZAP is a very multidisciplinary organization, and I think that's one of our strengths. So we are made up of clinicians and researchers from all types of medical and other disciplines involved in the care of people with these types of cancers and in research of these conditions, as well as community representatives and other stakeholders too. We think that we get most value out of these sorts of trials when we've got people coming at them from a whole range of different perspectives. And so that's what I was talking about earlier when I said we're trying to add extra value to these clinical trials. We don't want to know just how safe this drug is or this intervention is or whether it improves survival. That's important information. But if we're making people live twice as long and they're three times as miserable, then <laughs> we're not doing anyone any favours. So we have to understand those sorts of questions as well. So wherever possible, we, we try to get that broad-based consultation in trial design right from the beginning so that we can collect the information that really is going to make a difference. And in many cases, coming back to your earlier question, that sort of information might make the difference as to whether a treatment really is adopted as a standard therapy or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, that there is different trials, but there is a, definitely sort of a progression from different stages into how it's designed. So does every treatment for, for cancer go through like a similar process, you know, where there's different checkpoints and, and, and different stages? In broad terms, yes. You know, there has to be the first time that you try this treatment in humans and you have to work out how best to give it. Sometimes the process is accelerated. If you've got a magic treatment that makes your cancer disappear, then that's going to go through the process quite quickly all the way through to approval and it might skip some of those stages along the way. But in general terms, there is a steady progress through these phase one, two, three clinical trials. And then after a drug is approved, there's often phase four clinical trials, which is basically post-marketing surveillance. That's when you're going to find out about what the real world experience is in the community. Do these drugs perform as advertised? Are we starting to see the really, really unusual and rare side effects that you wouldn't have picked up in the smaller numbers in the earlier phase clinical trials? Gotcha. And where does the money for clinical trials come from? This is a perennial question. So <laughs> if it's a drug company-sponsored clinical trial, then they will provide the drug and the resources for doing the study. And that money is spent at the hospitals uh, not on me, it doesn't go into my pockets. It's spent on paying the salaries of the research nurses, the costs of giving the treatment, if it's intravenous treatment or if it's requiring time in hospital or those sorts of issues where you need to actually uh, use some resources to give the treatment. That's where the study costs go, paying for ethical review, paying pharmacy costs, all of those sorts of things behind the scenes. For an investigator-initiated clinical trial, it then becomes much more complex. So in the example of ANZAP, we receive some federal government infrastructure money through Cancer Australia, which provides us with some infrastructure support. That helps us pay some of our salaries in the office and keeps the lights on and, and puts paper in the photocopier. But we're not allowed to use any of that money to actually run a clinical trial. Every time we've got 
a clinical trial, we have to find the resources for that separately. So if I came up with the cure for prostate cancer today, and as I'm speaking, it is the end of July 2018, then the earliest I'd be able to put in a grant application to the NHMRC will be early next year. I'll find out the result of that at the end of next year. I'll have maybe a 10% chance of success for funding to start in 2020. That's 18 months away from now. And I just told you I had the cure for prostate cancer. 18 months before I can even start doing that if I'm relying on that. So we're always looking for other creative ways of supporting this sort of research. ANZUP has got a fundraising arm to it so that we can try to at least initiate some of these studies off our own bat while we're waiting for grant funding. We often do work with pharmaceutical companies. The difference there is, though, that we are the sponsor of the study, not them, and we control and, and, and own the data, not the company. They get benefit from it because we're testing their, their treatment, but this is our trial. They're not driving it. So there's a level of independence from the, from the drug company there. And that's a model that's worked very well. The companies like it as well because they get very high quality data in a short time uh, on questions that they might not otherwise be studying. But it's a perennial problem for us. Clinical research is expensive and it's slow and difficult, but really, really important. Yeah, yeah, and I know you have a perspective on, I guess, kind of these magic cures for for cancer as well. So, um, are we likely to get, you know, a, a cure for, let's say, prostate cancer, or testicular cancer, or kidney cancer? So you've listed three interesting cancers there, and there's three <laughs> that are of great interest to me. So, for people who might not know, testicular cancer is almost always curable right now. That that gives us a challenge. It's going to be difficult to improve upon that. Prostate cancer and kidney cancer, if it's spread beyond where it started, is usually not curable. And so our treatments are aimed at controlling the disease, hopefully shrinking it down, hopefully making people live longer and live better, but understanding that we might not be able to get rid of the, the cancer. So your question is about whether we're ever going to be able to cure these cancers. I don't know. A lot of very famous people have gone on record as saying silly things. You know, man will never be able to travel faster than 45 miles an hour. And, um, <laughs> there'll be one IBM computer in every city one day. Um, so silly comments have been made. I'm not going to make any rash predictions. The challenge for us, though, is we use terms like cancer, like prostate cancer, as though this is just one entity, and that's not the case. Even within a single person's cancer, there's literally billions of different cells and many of them are genetically distinct and behaving in different ways. So even in that one person, you might have some cancer cells that are sensitive to a treatment and some that are not. We're trying to think of clever ways around that. So some of the new immune-based treatments that work by stimulating the immune system have their effects not by acting on the cancer, but by stimulating the normal cells. So trying to get the immune system to reject the cancer like it would reject my kidney if I put it into your body. So that's attractive and is looking very promising in a number of cancer types. And it's been seen by many in the community as, as a really significant step forward, and, a, and it is. But to our disappointment, it doesn't work in every type of cancer. We still don't understand why. So I think we've still got a long way to go, unfortunately. Cool, gotcha. And Ian, I know you're passionate about people having a mindset where they would go into a hospital, you know, about to start treatment, to be asking whether there's a clinical trial that's possibly available to them. Can you talk about that? That's my dream, that we get rid of this guinea pig mentality, that people will go along and they'll have the conversation with their doctor and say, okay, I understand what the standard treatment options are. Are there any clinical trials that might be suitable for me? And there might or there might not be. But 
if there are, then I would hope people would consider taking part in those sorts of things. So we're very excited about that. We're trying to build that sort of capability. It's difficult and it's often seen in health services as something that's in addition to their usual clinical service provision. I don't think that's true at all. I think that clinical research and clinical trials are absolutely integral to what we do and should be part and parcel of our everyday work and therefore part of our everyday treatment as well. Yeah, fantastic. So, and if you're a patient, so how do you find out about that? Do you go to ask a specific doctor? Do you, do you keep track online? What do you do? How do you understand about how it works? Probably the best starting point is to talk to the specialists looking after your condition. GPs are often also well informed in general terms about clinical trials, but might not know the details of the specific clinical trials. Your specialist should, should understand that and should be able to point you in the direction of where these clinical trials are happening or where to find out more information. For people who just want to find general information, there's a number of sources. You can go to Cancer Council websites. There is uh, the Australian and New Zealand Clinical Trial Registry, ANZCTR. If people Google that, that will come up. There's an, a site based in the US called clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V, uh, which is also good. Some of these are in more technical terms, though. ANZAP and other trials groups have an app that you can download for uh, Apple devices or Android devices called uh, the ANZAP Clean Trials Refer app. And that's really fantastic because it will tell you, in the case of ANZAP, for example, all the trials that we're doing in whatever disease, where they're open, some information about the trial and where to go for more information. And that's pitched at not just clinicians, but anyone in the community. So it's a fantastic resource. Fantastic. So, and if someone wanted to start treatment for cancer and they were considering, you know, a clinical trial and you've never, never heard about it, what would you tell them? The way I approach this is I try to explain everything I can about the condition to this person and what the current standard options would be for them. And if there is a clinical trial that's appropriate and suitable for them, I then put it into that context. So if this is someone who's thinking about having some form of active treatment and there's a clinical trial, that's when I would then bring this in as an alternative for them to be thinking about. People need to understand they don't have to do this. This is completely voluntary. If there is a trial that's suitable for you and someone is recommending it for you, they'll give you information about it. We encourage people not to make snap decisions. Uh, we like you to go away and have a think about it, take this written information away, read it, scribble on it, talk about it with whoever they want to, and then come back and tell us what their thoughts are. And they might say at the end of that, look, this sounds interesting, but it's not for me, in which case that's absolutely fine. It doesn't affect our relationship with you at all, and we'll continue to do what we're going to do anyway. If the clinical trial looks like it might be something that they're interested in, then generally what we do is get them to sign the consent form. And that consent form is not a mortgage. What that means is they are agreeing to take part in the next steps of the clinical trial. That means also that they allow us to collect information about them. Uh, that'll eventually be published somewhere, but not in a way that they can be identified. It allows us to use a treatment that might not otherwise be approved for use in Australia and all of the other information that's in the consent form. I also point out to them that if someone goes under a clinical trial and at any point they want to or need to come off that treatment, they can. They're not locked into something. We encourage people not to unless there's a good reason, but if there is a good reason, then of course that takes priority. So people's best interests are always paramount when we're giving any sort of treatment, and in particular when people are on a clinical trial. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And I love that there is no pressure that as a patient, you, you kind of still feel in control of the process. That's absolutely right. Cool. So if someone wanted to find out more about ENZAP, maybe even find a way to contribute, what would you do? So they could go to our website, which is www.anzup.org.au. And there's a lot of information there about what clinical trials are in general and also specific information about our clinical trials. If people want to contribute financially, and some people are very interested in doing that, then there's also information on our website about how people can contribute in terms of financial contributions, but also in terms of raising awareness about clinical trials and what we do. Fantastic, and thank you so much. Thank you very much. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time, because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast, because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with, and you don't want to go it alone. And you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. So then there is the outcome map. Like This is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like, is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you can, you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague. Her name is Jill. Her husband had prostate cancer. So, uh, so he, she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times, um, when you go through cancer, when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling, you're on this roller coaster of emotions and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it. And there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want, or you can just listen to it online and, you know, and just uh, listen along with the PDF. So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And 
it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it, like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, and we just talked about, you'll also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of Simplified Cancer. And listen, I'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how I'm doing here. I mean, are you getting what, you, what you're looking for? Was there something in particular that, that really made sense to you? Or is there a question that you want to ask? Or maybe there's, there's just something that you, you want to get off your chest, like, please, I need to know. Just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 